Welcome to the latest episode of Comic Book Physics, released through Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. We're continuing to synchronize these podcasts with our unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels podcast. This week, that podcast is talking about X-Factor 87, so we're going to take a look at the powers of one particular member of X-Factor, namely Havoc, a.k.a. Alex Summers, a.k.a. the brother of Cyclops, who we discussed on February 26, 2014, so almost one year ago as of the date of the release of this podcast. Now, before we get into Havoc's powers and the discussion of those, we should just cover some science history, specifically the history of four of the more common temperature scales. When you're divining a temperature scale as a scientist, you want something a little more precise than what we do colloquially, which is warm, room temperature, cold. Different people will have different perceptions of this. Trust me, I'm Canadian. My definition of cold is very different from the definition of cold used by, say, your average Mexican. Neither one of us is right or wrong. We just have different contexts and different frames of reference. So in order for scientists to communicate internationally, they needed to develop standardized temperature scales. The first temperature scale was developed by Lord Kelvin, or at least the first of the ones we're going to discuss today. And the Kelvin scale was based as simply as possible on what we needed to do. In order to measure a temperature scale, you have to know where you are on the scale, and you have to know how far apart the points on the scale are. By the time Lord Kelvin came up with the scale, we'd already theorized that there was an absolute zero or a lowest possible temperature for things to feel. It's often described as the temperature at which all atomic motion stops. That's not an accurate description of absolute zero. Absolute zero is the point at which every particle is in the lowest possible energy state, but it's actually not possible to have all motion stop. Some particles need to be in orbits and need to continue moving in that context. What makes absolute zero special is that when multiple orbits are available, everything will be in the orbit with the least amount of energy requirements. So in Lauren Calvin's day, they didn't understand it that well because they didn't have the atomic theory and atomic models, but they did see absolute zero. So that's where Lord Kelvin set his scale. Then to figure out how far apart the temperatures are on that scale, or how far apart to put the notches, he decided to set 100 degrees between the freezing and boiling points of water. So the freezing point is, of course, the point where if you're cooling things off, liquid water becomes solid water, or if you're heating things up, solid water becomes liquid water as it melts. The boiling point is, of course, the transition point between liquid and gaseous water under most atmospheric pressures. So while this was a perfectly reasonable scale for scientists to use, it wasn't convenient for the average person on the street, since that makes the freezing point of water 273.15 degrees Kelvin, the boiling point is 373.15 degrees Kelvin, and what most of the world considers to be room temperature is in the low 290s in terms of degrees Kelvin. And talking about, you know, 290 some degrees out... It gets a little awkward. You want something slightly more convenient. So Lord Celsius came next, and he named his centigrade scale. Centigrade because there's a hundred gradations between freezing and boiling of water. So he effectively took Lord Calvin's scale and just moved the zero to someplace more convenient, namely the point where water freezes. That made room temperature about 21. Warm days in a lot of the world are in the mid-30s. It became fairly convenient numbers for people to work with. And even though he published it as the centigrade scale, a lot of people still refer to it as the Celsius scale. So Lord Celsius got famous without really trying. Lord Rankin noticed that, so he kind of jumped on the bandwagon and made his own scale, 
where he still had zero as absolute zero as, as Kelvin had done, but he needed a different methodology or a different mindset in terms of setting the degrees between the marks on the scale. So his thought process, and I kid you not, was to say if you go from freezing to boiling to freezing again, you've come full circle. Now a circle has 360 degrees. Totally different kind of degree, just happens coincidentally to use the same word in English. So Rankin said going that full circle is 360 degrees, therefore half the trip is 180 degrees, therefore there are 180 degrees between the freezing and boiling points of water. That's where that scale came from. Now when Lord Fahrenheit made the Fahrenheit scale in his own attempt to get famous, he took the Rankin scale and moved the zero, just as Celsius had done with his centigrade scale relative to the Kelvin scale, but the way he said it was to take the pet project that he liked to work on in the lab that happened at one very specific temperature and set that temperature to 100 degrees, simply to try and get more attention on his personal pet project. Now, because the UK and France haven't always gotten along, when France adopted the Celsius scale as their official scale, the UK refused to participate and make the same choice as France, so they went with the Fahrenheit scale. So that's why in the Fahrenheit scale, water freezes at 32 and boils at 212. There's 180 degrees between them, so that if you go there and back, you've gone 360 degrees or full circle, and it is 32 and 212, which are kind of unusual numbers, because Lord Fahrenheit's pet project happened at the 100 degree mark. So we're going to need that in context, mainly the Kelvin, Celsius, and Fahrenheit scales. So to get sort of a feel for the temperatures that we're used to, the freezing point of water is 273.15 degrees Kelvin, or 0 degrees Celsius, or 32 degrees Fahrenheit under normal atmospheric conditions. The boiling point of water is 373.15 degrees Fahrenheit, 100 degrees Celsius, and 212 degrees Fahrenheit. As temperatures get hotter and hotter and hotter, as a general rule of thumb, the temperature in Celsius, or Kelvin, is about half the temperature in Fahrenheit. So if you're used to working in Fahrenheit, when I start talking about Celsius temperatures, when they get fairly high, as they will in this podcast, double the number, that's roughly the temperature we're talking about on the Fahrenheit scale. All right, so back to Havoc and Alex Summers and his powers. So Alex Summers is able to absorb cosmic rays, convert them into plasma, and then release that in a directed energy form that's either highly destructive or just kind of annoying. The visuals that go along with it are concentric circles in a very distinct pattern, those circles are a result of the containment suit that Havoc wears. So the concentric circles won't really be discussed here because that's coming down to the suit and that's the way it's channeled out. You take a suit away, things don't come out in concentric circles. So now we need to figure out what are cosmic rays. Well, they're the highest energy form of electromagnetic radiation. The electromagnetic radiation that uses the least amount of energy is the radio wave. As we increase the energy, we move from radio waves into microwaves, microwaves to infrared, infrared to visible, then into ultraviolet, x-rays, gamma rays, and cosmic rays. So if you're writing science fiction books in the late 60s, as was the case when Havoc was first created, cosmic rays sound like they're even more powerful than the Hulk and the gamma rays that created him. And on a ray-by-ray -ray basis, so if you look at individual photons, that's true. But if they've got that much energy, and we on the street don't really notice it, the question is, how many cosmic rays are out there? These are, after all, Havoc's fuel. So Havoc's powers are driven and fueled by the cosmic rays he absorbs. So what is his energy output? How much energy can he absorb, which he would then turn around and release as this plasma? 
and we'll define plasma in a moment. Well, on average, on the Earth's surface, we're receiving 0.39 millisieverts worth of cosmic ray radiation per day. Now, a millisievert is a measure of how much energy would be absorbed by a particular mass. So 0.39 millisieverts per day is 0.39 millijoules of energy per kilogram each day. So if Havoc's mass is 175 pounds, as listed on marvel.com, then his mass is 79.4 kilograms. So he'll absorb about 0.031 joules of energy per day, which is enough to warm one gram of water at standard ambient temperature or pressure, so like most chem labs, by 7.48 millikelvin, or 0.00748 degrees Celsius, or about 0.0135 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's about how many hit the Earth's atmosphere over a given point each day. That's not a lot of energy. Even worse, that's not something that Havoc can absorb, because the problem with cosmic rays is they don't reach the surface. They've got a phenomenal amount of energy, and frankly, we don't quite understand how they're produced, because we see cosmic rays with energies that are far beyond anything we'd expect from the natural phenomenon we've identified so far. But that said, our atmosphere is thick enough that when cosmic rays hit it, they cause what we refer to as particle showers or cascades. This is essentially a reverse nuclear reaction. In a nuclear reaction, you are taking mass and converting it into energy with the E equals mc squared relationship originally discovered and described by Albert Einstein. When you're talking about particle showers, it's the reverse. A high energy particle hits the atmosphere, and as it collides with other particles, it starts to give off that energy. And it gives off energy in large enough quantities that that energy can form mass in the form of new particles. So most cosmic ray detectors are detecting cosmic rays by putting detectors on multiple rooftops spread over a very large area. And when I say very large, I mean typically multiple cities. And when all of these detectors notice a spike in particles coming down at the same time, then we can backtrack that and say, that's the shower caused by this cosmic ray. So for example, the city of Edmonton is the city I live in. It has the largest geographic area in terms of surface covered of any other city in North America. If a cosmic ray hits right over the dead center of Edmonton, it would create a shower of particles wide enough to exceed the boundaries of the city. So that's way larger than a person. So this tiny amount of energy that's coming in, it's not even being absorbed directly by havoc. He's just getting a fraction of it and what's left over in these particle showers as they cascade and shower and cover huge amounts of area. They're not very frequent. They don't carry a whole lot of energy, so we don't really notice them. So effectively, Havoc is cut off from his fuel supply. So if cosmic rays are coming from space, which is the only natural form of cosmic rays that we've identified, he's not going to see it. So, But let's assume that that small amount of energy he absorbs is what's driving his plasma blasts. Let's take a look at that. So first of all, in order to discuss that, we have to answer the question, what is plasma? Well, with most solids, if you heat them enough, they melt and turn into liquids. When you heat liquids enough, they boil and turn into gases. There are exceptions. Dry ice skips the liquid state under most atmospheric conditions and does what we call sublimation, going directly from solid to gas. Well, if you keep heating up that gas to extremely high temperatures, you can eventually reach the point where the atoms start to separate, just as the atomic structure separated from consistent crystals to big chunks of molecules and liquids, and then those chunks of molecules evaporated into or separated into individual molecules and gases, 
when you boil things enough to turn them into plasma, in a low-energy plasma, you boil it enough that the electrons start escaping from their orbits, and the molecules start falling apart, as well as some of the atoms. You keep going hot enough, and the nuclei will actually heat up and split apart. So the protons and neutrons are able to break their bonds, and there's just this wash of extremely high-energy particles. So, how hot is this plasma? Can it do the levels of damage that Havoc has been seen to do? It depends a little bit on the material that you're turning into plasma, but at the very least, it has to be significantly higher in temperature than the boiling point. So the lower energy plasmas where you just boil the electrons off, they are possible. Now, the atmospheric pressure will make a difference. So if we look at naturally occurring plasmas, we see those in things like Aurora Borealis and Aurora Australis, high in the upper atmosphere where there's not a lot of pressure. So we hit plasmas there with lower energies. We also see them inside stars or in lightning and other such extremes. So those auroras, you can spark those with just a few hundred degrees Kelvin. So it's got to be hot enough to boil water with room to spare. If you get hit by it in almost any quantity, it's going to be fatal. There's a tremendous amount of energy in that. And that's what you get with the aurora borealis and the aurora australis, where you've got that very low atmospheric pressure holding things together. If you look at some situations that have higher pressures, you'll end up with higher temperatures required to make the plasma, just because driving those atoms and molecules apart will take more energy when they're squeezed together more tightly. So if we're looking at the core of, say, a sun, well, the core of our sun is at a temperature of around 10 million degrees Kelvin. So we're not talking about the surface temperature of 5,800 degrees Kelvin, but the core. That's incredibly hot. If we look at lightning, believe it or not, lightning is actually hotter than the sun. The core of the sun at the hottest point is 10 million degrees Kelvin, approximately. Lightning is more like 100 million degrees Kelvin. Thankfully, it's very, very brief and relatively narrow, but that's part of the reason it can be so damaging. So when we look at the amount of damage that Havoc can do with these plasma bursts, well, clearly he's not losing a lot of mass because we don't see him lose weight after battle. He doesn't seem to have a heightened appetite. So he's not losing a lot of mass, but he could still cause a tremendous amount of damage just because of the sheer energy that's in it. So when we see Havoc tearing buildings apart, well, if his body is able to produce and direct that plasma, that's totally in the realm of possibility. The mildest form of his powers, where he's been seen to just kind of give someone a headache, that is actually tougher to buy. If he's making plasmas at all, they're going to be way beyond the headache-inducing level, and almost certainly at the fatal level. I mean, yeah, people survive more extreme attacks than that. I mean, people have walked away from lightning strikes on more than one occasion, but they don't walk away immediately. They don't get hit and keep on going. They're typically knocked unconscious, hospitalized, often suffer some minor neurological damage. I actually have a cousin who's been hit more than once. He usually experiences blackouts and mental lapses just because our brains are wired by electricity and you dump a whole bunch of current through them and they tend to misbehave. But if we're looking at these, you know, let's say Havoc is making plasma out of water, which is the most abundant element in the human body. If he were to, say, create one kilogram of plasma over his entire lifetime at 1,000 degrees Kelvin, which is the temperature for that upper atmosphere, low pressure kind of plasma, the kind that's not likely to work at ground level but has the least energy, so that's the one we're working with, given the amount of specific radiation that hits the Earth in that 0.39 millisieverts per day, it's going to take him a little over 250,000 years to absorb enough energy through cosmic rays to do exactly that, assuming he can absorb the entire shower which spreads across a city, which he can't do. 
Now, comic book characters may age more slowly than people in the real world, but not that slowly. So if his powers work at all, then the energy he uses to create this plasma has got to be produced somewhere else. It's not just cosmic rays. The only conceivable explanation is that those particle showers spawned by cosmic rays are just a catalyst. And if we look at a particular story arc when Uncanny X-Men crossed over with the Exiles, we learn that the havoc we see in Marvel 616, or the main Marvel Universe, is sort of a nexus for other multidimensional havocs. So he's tied into the multiverse. Now, if he's able to tap into that abundant extra-dimensional energy that the Marvel multiverse has that we've already seen with characters such as Speedball, well, we don't really know what flow of energy there is. It is possible that he could produce enough energy that way. Now, we've seen that his body does need cosmic rays to metabolize and produce this energy so he can create plasma, but they may not be the source of the fuel. They may just be the catalyst that allows him to process the fuel from the extra-dimensional sources. So if we do that caveat and say that his powers were misidentified, since his powers weren't originally studied by, say, a Reed Richards or someone else a little more versed in multidimensional physics, but rather by geneticist Charles Francis Xavier, Professor X is a leading geneticist in the Marvel multiverse. That doesn't make him a physics expert. I mean, I've got two physics degrees. I couldn't tinker with genetics to save my life if I wanted to have a predictable outcome. So I suspect it's just not his field. He recognized the importance of cosmic rays, but misidentified the exact process in terms of what was going on. So in short, if Havoc is tied into that multidimensional energy and the extra-dimensional energy that so many other Marvel characters are tied to, well, then his powers do kind of work. I don't know how the human body would create plasma, but the comics have never proposed a method for that either. It's just kind of happening. And he stores the energy for it and not the plasma itself, which means we don't have to worry about his temperature greatly as long as it's just a catalyst. So that's what I suspect is happening. He's using the cosmic rays to perform some sort of physiological change that stores in his body, and that catalyzes his ability to open up portals to other dimensions and that's where the energy driving the plasma burst comes from. So I'm going to give the physics behind Havoc's powers a conditional pass. So that's about all we have to say for Havoc. Join us again next month when we're doing something that coincides with the Chris Claremont run of the New Mutants that I'll be discussing with Al Sedano, and on comic book physics, some New Mutants-related topic that has yet to be determined. Suggestions for that topic can, as always, be sent to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com, or it could be submitted through the forums on Bureau42.com. Please feel free to rate and review the show on iTunes and Stitcher, or just give a pointer to a friend who you think may enjoy it and might want to listen. So join us again next month for that topic, and thank you for listening.